When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Happy Friday. How are you doing today? On the agenda... A dog recovering from, apparently, a blow from an axe in County Offaly. The health facts that could be fiction. The first Arctic air blast of the year is due to end soon. Little bit of good news for you. And how the Scandinavians are cutting back on road deaths and, actually, enforcement is the last resort. When you call 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text, you can WhatsApp. 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. What is happening around the region and around the world today? Ooh, this is going to put up your blood pressure. Just be warned. You know the deposit return scheme, the extra charge on the plastic bottle or the can? Well, there are 6,000 retailers in the country who will sell these. And all 6,000 retailers have to apply the extra charge, which can be 25 cents on a large plastic bottle. But according to the front of the Irish Independent, only a third of those shops will offer cash back for your empty bottle. Just 1,800 of the 6,000 are investing in the reverse vending machines. So from the 1st of February, you'll have to pay everywhere, but you can only get the money back in a third of locations. That was well thought out. Moving on to the Irish Times. The number of people who were paid pandemic unemployment payment while working is twice what the Department of Social Protection thought it was. So there were some people who legitimately had an overlap. If you recall, during the pandemic, many workers were sent home and little by little, maybe one or two days a week, they were brought back into the office. And if you were only working one or two days a week, then you qualified for the pandemic unemployment payment. But then there were some who weren't entitled to it, but claimed it anyway. And they reckon 20,000 people got the payment while in employment. And that brings us to the front page of the Irish Daily Mail. Revenue will deduct the extra COVID payments from your pension. So one way or the other, you will pay it back. But there seems to be a softly, softly approach being suggested, not to recoup the money in one lump sum, but to retrieve it over time. Front of the Irish Daily Star. Deadly blast at homeless hostel. A man in his 30s has been killed after an explosion under his bed. So Gordy suspect there was a pipe bomb left under this poor unfortunate individual's bed and it exploded at the DePaul Homeless Centre in Dublin and a full investigation is now underway. The front of the Irish Examiner will make you 
probably lose your breakfast. It's really a stomach-churning story. Computerized child abuse is on the rise. So with artificial intelligence, images can be manipulated and created out of thin air. And according to the Irish Examiner, 30% of child abuse images are now being created by artificial intelligence. And I suppose in some sort of warped way, maybe it is better for those who want to watch these images that real people are not involved in the making of them. Anyway, that's the main story on The Examiner. Let's go inside the papers. We need something that's perhaps a little bit more cheerful. For instance, the key to a long life. Richard Morgan is 93 years young and he lives in Douglas in County Cork. And he was found to have the aerobic engine of a healthy 30 or 40 year old. But perhaps the most extraordinary part of this man's story is that he only started exercising when he was in his 70s. So he wasn't Sporty Spice as a teenager. He, by chance, happened to attend a rowing practice for one of his grandchildren and a coach casually invited him to try out a rowing machine and instantly he caught the fitness bug. And he doesn't go to swanky gyms, he doesn't take fancy energy supplements. He trains mostly in his own shed and he sticks to a very simple, healthy but consistent diet. So he's going to be the subject of a study at the Technological University of the Shannon, where his grandson, Lorcan Daly, is a lecturer. Hopefully we can talk to Lorcan, or even Richard himself, at some stage on the programme. Leo Varadkar insists you will be arrested if you set fire to asylum seeker accommodation. The Taoiseach was speaking yesterday, and his comments are reported in the Irish Examiner, saying there are a number of Garda investigations underway, there have been people questioned and searches carried out, but his big fear is that there will be a tragedy when somebody is inside one of these asylum seeker centres when they are set on fire. And of course, the latest attempt was in Lanesborough in Longford only earlier this week, and the owner of the building has withdrawn from having it leased for that purpose after threats were made for his safety and the safety of his family. Click over to page 24 of the Irish Daily Star, a most unusual health complaint. Michelle Waldron is a 34-year-old from Roscommon, and she claims she has been to the emergency department ten times because of this issue. She claims she cannot sleep that she has chronic pain. And what is the cause? Her mobile phone, or so she believes, that her shoulder, through repetitive strain, is too painful to lie on. She cannot cook, she cannot clean, she cannot do housework. And she has tried to use a stylus on her phone rather than moving her fingers around. And she has spent a thousand euro on Botox treatment to try and solve the problem. Have you ever heard of this before? 
page 24 of the Star. If you are thinking of getting some sort of medical procedure done, by the way, the Irish Independent details the concerns of Professor Donal O'Shea at the HSE. And he is concerned with Turkish clinics offering cosmetic surgery, weight loss surgery, bigger you-know-what surgery. And they are putting advertisements on Facebook making what he feels are irresponsible claims. They are leaving out key information, such as the risks with some of these procedures. And he says there is no oversight of the quality of service and we are seeing shocking results coming back. People had the wrong operation or a procedure where they didn't meet the right criteria. But there are agencies in Turkey promoting medical tourism and they are offering cut price deals. Black Friday was awash with them, for instance. And so Professor O'Shea wants the Advertising Standards Authority here to kick in. It's all about choice because the reality is here in Ireland if you are waiting for a procedure you will be waiting quite a while or if you have the means you go to a private clinic in Ireland but the price will be much greater generally speaking than it is in Turkey. And you always keep that in the back of your mind as well that the industry here doesn't like that people go to Turkey and there will be a certain amount of Fear cultivated. I'm not dismissing what Professor O'Shea is saying for a moment, but I think the moral of the story is be informed. Do your homework. Don't just follow what the glitzy ad says. Do the research on wherever you are going, including here in Ireland as well, to make sure that they have good reviews, that they have uh, a regulatory body, that they are held accountable if something goes wrong, and that you have a backup plan. Irish Independent. Here's a letter from a boss. What would you do if you were in the boss's shoes? He or she writes, At the Christmas party, I found out that one of my staff members is on OnlyFans, where she posts rather explicit content. We are a small professional services firm with a good reputation. I am concerned her work on this platform will reflect poorly on our business. If you're in the office, look around now. Who's on old fans? Hmm? She doesn't yet know I'm aware of her being on this platform. Apparently one of her co-workers found out and the gossip spread around the office and it seems I'm always the last to know. I'd like to discuss it with her so she's aware of the reputational damage it could cause our business. But the issue is we don't have a policy on side jobs and a number of her co-workers have side businesses of their own, which I have no issue with. I'd like to know what my rights are. So, the answer, coming from a variety of experts, is there a conduct policy? Anything in the employment contract referring to professional conduct? If there isn't, that could be a problem. Also, there is a suggestion from a mediator that the best way to do this is to approach it head-on. First of all, you don't know for definite that she's on OnlyFans. It could actually be malicious gossip, in which case there's a bullying complaint to investigate. Either way, it's a delicate one. Don't envy whoever that is. They're always the last to know. How delimitary of them. Final one for you. You know the people who go around the house, or they go around the office, and they are always turning off the lights. 
You step out of a room for a moment and the next thing you know it's pitch black. I'm one of those. And it causes lots of rows in lots of families. But a new piece of research has come out to say that leaving the lights on in an empty room costs less than you might think. That if you switch off the lights religiously, the saving will be just two euro per year. And yet, more than half of families bicker endlessly about lights left on. So the data shows leaving a 4.2 watt LED bulb on for an extra four hours a day adds up to €2.30 over the course of the year. Ah, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Leaving one bulb on for four hours a day adds up to 2.30. Yeah, but if you're in a kitchen and you've got a dozen of these LED bulbs, now you're up to 27 quid. Hmm. And then if you've got another room that's the same... Ah! You always have to dig into the detail. Or am I just being Scrooge? Well, I've been waiting ten years for an operation, but finally it has been scheduled for March. Well, you can see why, in a situation like that, somebody would be very tempted to go to Turkey. Thank you very much. A listener who was at the Aviva Stadium a few weeks ago noticed one of the old hotels in the Balls Bridge area all boarded up. Why isn't that used for international protection applicants or for people from Ukraine? Good question, but again, I suppose it's up to whoever owns it, whether they wish to use it for that purpose, whether they wish to renovate it and restore it as a hotel. Dublin is probably the most lucrative market for hotels as traditional hotels. And... Ultimately, maybe they don't have the funds to renovate it if it's been disused for some time. It's a very individual matter, but thank you. It's a good point. And a listener says, regarding the concerned boss about his staff being on OnlyFans, if it hasn't affected the reputation of the uh, company thus far, it's probably not going to. Actually, tackling it could well blow everything out into the open, especially if there's an unfair dismissals claim. Maybe... Being a little bit blind, playing the ostrich, burying the head in the sand, that could be the answer. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner with the stories beyond the headlines. Midlands 103 (laughs) Person points out, perhaps quite rightly, that the reason the hotel in Dublin is not being used for the international protection applicants is because it's in a posh part of the city. You may well be right. The answer is unknown. Now, still on the agenda today, the health facts that could be fiction. How do you tell the difference? Because a woman in Cantilish is involved in a research project that has some very interesting answers. The question is, who pays for the studies? And are they paying to get a particular outcome? A dog is recovering from an incident that I'm just going to give you an advisory. This may be unpleasant to hear. It'll be a short conversation about what actually happened. The reason we're doing this is to, first of all, raise awareness to try and figure out can the person responsible be identified. Also to highlight the good people that are in the world, not just the bad. Martina Kenny is co-founder of My Lovely Horse Rescue in County Kildare. Martina, you're very welcome to the programme. Good morning. 
thank you for having me on. My pleasure. I wish we weren't talking in these circumstances, mind you. I know. But look, it's a good outcome, so that's good. Absolutely. Well, tell us about Maeve. Um, Maeve came to us um, a couple of months ago before Christmas and um, we had a call from a lady in Tullamore, um, very upset and didn't know what to do. And um, she, a dog, she had seen a dog staggering along with what looked like something on its head or she couldn't figure out. Um, it was all like black, so it, mm. it was blood. And she was terrified. This dog was so terrified and emaciated, like so skinny and really, really weak. Anyway, we went into her garden. The lady got her into her garden. She fed her. You know, she couldn't go near her for a bit. And then she called us. Um, I spoke to her and I said, look, get her straight to, um, you know, I, I thought about our vets that could deal with something like this. She had got her to just a locum um, just to sort of say, look, you know, clean this up before it gets there or has to go for surgery or whatever. But uh, they thought either some sort of a an object or a gunshot. But when we got her to Southview in Tipperary, um, they did all sorts of x-rays and, and cleaned it all out. But it was literally, somebody had tried to murder her with an axe or something like an axe, maybe a little bit more blunt, mm. right on the head, and it went right into her skull. So they picked two pieces of her skull out. Oh, Lord. And... Yeah. So when she went to Southview, and that's a specialist veterinary hospital, yeah, what did they do to yeah. help her? They basically, first of all, flushed, they cut away a lot of the skin and they flushed the whole thing out. I mean, it did look pretty gory. They showed us the photographs of the pieces of two pieces of bone that, that came out of her skull, was stuck still in it. Um, then they um, just kept flushing and cleaning and, and cutting away as much as they could until, you know, she, she was really prone to infection at this point. So they, they, you know, they said even though she's an amazing, brave dog and so unbelievably just so gentle, it was unreal, but terrified of everybody. And um, so slowly but surely she came around and they just kept doing that until the, the flesh starts to grow a little bit in. So they literally... Um, they they had a patch first thing on it just to sort of save it from, you know, um, from the infection because they said that was the main problem they had was infection could kill her because it was so open and right into her skull. But um, so she's never, from the day she's been there, she hasn't come out yet. Um, so she's ah. basically, um, it starts to grow over. So they, they, they stitched as much as they could together, which was an amazing job. I mean, she looked like something out of the monsters, but she, like, they did an amazing job. Mm. Um, and then um, she is now um, doing so good that they have actually said they may let her out tomorrow. That will be her first time to actually leave tomorrow. Um, so we're just, we'll, we'll know more this afternoon, but we're hoping it is tomorrow. She's, she, they love her. She's come around. She's got really friendly. The, in fact, what the nurses and the vets have said over there said they have never had such an amazing gentle girl ever. Ah, they said lovely. they can't believe this dog. Yeah. So I'm looking at the pictures. That's a good outcome. And yeah. it was the 18th of December when you shared these. Yeah. Yeah. And she is so thin. You can see yeah. all of her ribs, her entire rib yeah. cage. Um, she's, as you said, completely emaciated. And yeah. the wound, very black looking probably not terribly fresh at that point. Who knows how yeah. long she had been wandering aimlessly and alone or how long she had been exactly. abused before Looking that. Looking for help. Mm. Yeah. Oh, she, like, she definitely, like, Maeve knew no love. She's about, 
a one and a half two, and she has seriously just experienced complete cruelty. I mean, if she could talk, if I always say, if the animals could talk, I'd say it's horror stories only, you know, the things that we probably haven't even heard of at this point. But um, Maeve's story, if she was able to tell it, I'm sure it would be just something that would be like, oh my God. And it's such a shame they can't because then they can identify who's done this to them and all sorts of stuff. But look, this is the sad life of animals. They can't tell us, you know, but they still forgive. Like She has forgiven humans for what they've done to her. But here we are a month later. How does she yeah. look now? She looks brilliant. Um, she has a dent in her head, obviously, a, a mm. big dent in her head, um, which will always have to be, you know, for the, for, oh, for the long foreseeable anyway, be checked every now and again. And, you know, and really great care taken of her. Um, so that's definitely, you know, that will happen. Um, we have to be careful that nothing kind of bangs into her head and stuff like that. Uh, but otherwise, She's doing. She's doing so well. It's it's insane. Like she's eating great. She's running around now. She wants to play. She loves everybody at Southview, and um and she'll be ready then to go to her foster, which will be her foster to adopt. Given the time that's elapsed, and I suppose the potential for her to have wandered quite far. Do you think we'll ever find out who did this? No, sadly, we won't find out exactly who did it. Um because obviously she wasn't chipped. Um, and, and that's one of the things we do say, it's great if they are chipped. And, you know, you might re- ring and someone says, oh, well, I just bred them and sold them on. But really, the, the law states that if you're the name, the same as a horse, if you're the name on that chip, then, you know, then it all falls back on you. And that's the end of it. So people, breeders out there, as much as I want to go stop breeding, we have enough dogs. Um, because we're in, a, in the middle of a, a huge, the, the biggest dog crisis we've ever had in Ireland. Um, so, you know, breeding is just ridiculous. But people need to make sure that the chips are changed because they could get into trouble if they sell their dog or whatever. But um, having a chip is great because then we have something to fall back on, somebody, you know, to prosecute even. And we have, we've had some great successful prosecutions because the dogs or the horses have been chipped to that person. But sadly, Maeve wasn't. Well, a quick plug, because yours, like many others, is a voluntary organisation. You rely on donations. Mainly voluntary, yeah, yeah. And as the name My Lovely Horse Rescue might mislead, obviously you do dogs as well. So how can we all help out? Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I hate to talk about the dirty word money, but that's what gets us going. We have uh, just over 700 animals in our care. You know, right now we took three more poor dogs in yesterday every animal that we're taking in at the moment is emergency so therefore they're like Maeve or broken legs you know three with broken legs already and it's only the start of the year and we need funding we need funding hugely from the public because I think at this point it's it's lovely horse animal rescue we do you know we, we rescue goats and pigs dogs cats horses donkeys mules um and as I said in our care right now over 700 animals and that's a lot of money and a lot of veterinary bills. Yeah, I like the skinny pigs on your page, by the way. Yeah, God love them. Yeah, you know that's what I mean. And that, and they're going to they have to go to UCD. You know all these different things. Like I I think the vets know us so well now. It's like oh there they are. You know because that's one thing as well. No matter how less money we have, we literally just say to the vets, do whatever you can. We'll worry mm-hmm. about cost. You just worry about making them better. And that's that's how it is with us, you know. Yeah. This is a human problem. 
and it's up to humans to fix it for these poor things. Well, those particular guys, worth having a look at. Their personalities are brilliant, whatever about the circumstances <laughs> they find themselves in. Yeah, Martina, they are. They are. thank you very much for thank your time. You so uh, thank you. Bye. Martina Kenny is co-founder of My Lovely Horse Rescue in Kildare. Here with the news and views that you can use. Midlands Today with Will Faulkner. Midlands 103. The things people say about health that are portrayed as fact can be very serious from allegations about uh, COVID and vaccines to the not-so-serious, like things your granny might have said years ago as a home remedy. So you can go onto a website that's been up and running for the last year and it has a whole team of researchers behind it to investigate and to check out what is fact and what is fiction. And it's called iHealthFacts.ie. Dr. Paula Byrne is a lead researcher with it, and she lives in County Leash. So therefore, everything she says must be true. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Will. How are you? How do you discern the fact from the fiction? So um, if I can just just start by saying, as you said, we're a, a website run by the University. Way and we're funded by the Health Research Board and HSE, just have to say that. So what we do as researchers, if somebody is looking for an answer to a question about a health claim, so anything to do with food, supplements, medicines, exercise that are supposed to be good or bad for your health, we go out and we look for all the evidence that's available on that topic. So we're not happy just to find one study that tells us one thing. We need to look at all the evidence, bring it all together, kind of rate it for quality, is it good, bad, and then try to extract the information we need from it as best we can. Yeah. So you, that's, you have to that's do a degree of filtering, all right. I was going to ask, because let's say yeah. I am selling um, oat milk, for instance, and I pay for a study to promote all the benefits and virtues of oat milk versus dairy. Well, I'm yeah. going to look for a particular outcome, am I? So you need to exactly. see how many counteracting studies there are, or what the agenda of each one is. Exactly. So what we do is called systematic reviewing and the clue is in the name. Um, so we, we have, it's almost like the paint by numbers of research in, in health and medicine. So we, we have a very specific way of going about it and uh, that hopefully protects us from any bias as far as possible. So over the last year, more than 150 questions have been submitted. And let's yeah. just explore some of them. Do dock leaves relieve nettle stings? <laughs> now this was very very disappointing <laughs> because of course we all know the doctors of course they 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 things but unsurprisingly there is actually no scientific evidence on what? that and as as a friend of mine pointed out well who is going to fund evidence or research on dock leaves that are sitting in the ditches. So we, we didn't find any evidence at all, but we did find come some interesting information about stings from nettles. So stings are actually two different things. The, the acid of the, the actual chemical or component of the nettle, plus this little spikes that actually pierce you. So there's two things happening mm. with a sting. Now, I would have thought that you know, in my ignorance, I thought, well, maybe dock leaves neutralize the acid of the, do of the, uh, the nettles, but actually dock leaves are acidic as well. 
But I, I just refuse to believe that one altogether. Um, and of course, Dockley cures. Yes, even if it's placebo effect, it doesn't matter. It still works. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing, it's not going to do you much harm, which is an important point. Does taking magnesium supplements make you sleep any better? Yeah. Now, if I could take a step back then from from the actual question, Will, because not only to systematically review the evidence, we have to kind of see what kind of studies are there. And there's two large categories of studies. One is called an observational study. So supposing I invented a new drug for heart attack. Mm. And I gave it to a group of people and I just looked at them and I said, well, they seem to have fairly low rates of heart attack. Uh, so therefore, my new drug works. That study is actually telling me nothing because I don't know if that rate of heart attack would have happened anyway. So I would need to compare that group to a very similar group of people who differ only in that I gave one group the drug and the other group I didn't give the drug to. And then I can actually measure the outcomes. So that comparative study is the the basis of what we call randomized controlled trials. So usually we do our reviews. The first thing we're looking at is are there randomized controlled trials or are they just observational studies which are quite tricky to to discern if they're actually if something has an effect. So going back to the magnesium, we found three systematic reviews that other people had done. They were high quality, but the studies within them weren't of very high quality. So the reviews were done well, but they found low quality studies. But the studies were randomized controlled trials, largely. So the first one found that uh, sleep onset and insomnia were improved by taking magnesium. Mm -hmm. The second one found was a combination of these randomized controlled trials and observational. The randomized controlled trials were uncertain. The observational studies said sleep improved with the use of uh, magnesium. But you have to question, did you do a fair comparison there? And then the third third study or the third review we found uh, found no benefit. So we kind of had mixed findings there. And with a lot of things, you, you, your your conclusion is kind of well. We need more research, or we need bigger, better randomized trials before you actually know what was happening. So that's that's as far as we got with the magnesium. Okay. So, so the answer is it's complicated. Sure. Yeah, we're not sure. Is the answer? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One more, and you see, the last time you were on, I have to make a confession. I was curious. Would you check out something that was maybe a little politically incorrect? So I submitted this question, and you have answered it. Does cycling damage a man's (laughs) gentleman sausage? And I tell you, Will, I'm so glad to find out who submitted that question. (laughs) I loved the way it was submitted. And that we were were able to figure out what the question was, but we had to do a bit of, you know, discerning (laughs) gentlemen's sausages, what, what they were. But this is actually a really good question because there's so many people cycling now, aren't they? You know, and I know we, we all tease the, the mammals, the middle-aged mm, men in mm. micro. But, of which I'm now one, is, yes. <laughs> so, 
But it's it's a very good question and it's a very serious question. So um, the question was on kind of we we figured the question was on kind of circulation or nerve damage to the the men the part of the man mm-hmm. that is sitting on the saddle basically, um, and we didn't find any uh, research exactly on that, but we did find one systematic review on erectile dysfunction and uh, cycling. Now, going back to what I was saying about the type of studies we were doing, the studies in this systematic review are cross-sectional. That means they're observational studies. That means we didn't really have a good comparative group. And they did find, if you controlled for other factors like blood pressure and other things that might cause erectile dysfunction, that there did seem to be a higher rate of uh, erectile dysfunction among men who cycled. Now, I would have to absolutely stress that with an observational study, it's a bit like chicken and egg. So supposing, for example, I don't know if this is true, supposing men who had erectile dysfunction by their doctors to go out and cycle. Mm. Do you know what I mean? We know like from an official study without a really good comparative group, we don't know does the cycling cause erectile dysfunction? Is there something else? Are they, you know, a group of overweight men who are more likely to have erectile dysfunction go cycling? So it's really important to distinguish that. So we'd we'd need to do a really good study comparing men that are the very same except one group does cycling and the other doesn't, and follow them over time. So that's as far as we got with gentlemen. Yeah, so the jury is out, in other words. Don't pack, pack the away the, ba- the bike just yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't, get, don't give it up just yet. Yeah, yeah. Alternatively, then, we could just ask the partners of all of those men in the cycling yeah, clubs. Yes, 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 you could. But again, you'd have to you'd have to ask the partners of a, a similar group who weren't cycling, and you you know. So so research is is tricky. It's tricky in one way, but it's very simple. If you want to know the effect of an intervention, anything you do for your health, you have to have one group that's doing it that are the very same as another group who aren't doing it, and it's only then that you can really get down to to the, the nitty gritty to the the facts. And also, as I said at the very beginning, that you're systematically reviewing all the evidence because you might have one study that shows one thing. You could have 10 that show the complete opposite. And your point at the very beginning, particularly if there's funding involved, you know, and particularly Mm -hmm. in drug trials, um, we have this thing in publication bias. So, for example, a big drug company is far more likely to publish a study that shows positive effects, obviously than one that shows no effect from their drug. Now, within research, there are huge efforts now to force all trials to be published. You know, so you have to register your trial initially and then somebody can go back and and go, well, where does that one go? So I think it's huge efforts to have in medical research to try and get fair comparisons of things. And it's a really, really important thing to make people uh, do that, you know, to me. Paula, it's a fantastic website, ihealthfacts.ie, and I strongly recommend that anybody check it out. And if you have a question that isn't answered, then you can just submit it. Paula and her team will get on top of it. Paula Byrne is lead researcher with ihealthfacts.ie, and she's from County Leash. Love the Midlands? 
Good morning. Now, still to talk about today, a young woman from Raheen in County Leash, a young man from Barna in County Offaly, emigrate to the United States and give birth to a murderer once hunted by the FBI and who disappeared without a trace. A remarkable story coming up in half an hour's time. The Friday panel takes you through all the stories you may have missed over the last seven days and the first Arctic air blast of the year is about to end. Temperatures, you'll be pleased to know, are going up from later today. But what's coming afterwards is a case of hang on to your hat, really. When you call 0818 300 103 is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Now, I did warn earlier, this is the sort of story that will raise your blood pressure. In principle, you might agree with applying a levy to plastic bottles and cans to encourage more recycling. And, again, the principle is that if you return those bottles, you get a refund on your deposit, which is 15 cent in the case of small bottles and cans and 25 cent for larger bottles. And, you know, that adds up over time. And there are 6,000 retailers eligible to sell these beverages. But according to the Irish Independent, only a third of those shops will be offering cash back for the empty plastic bottles. Yet all of them will be obliged to charge the levy. So, let's find out why only 1,800 of 6,000 are buying in. Martin Mulligan is the owner of Mulligan's Londis in Athlone, and he's also a member of the National Federation of Retail News Agents. He's the district president for this part of the country. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, how are you? What is going to be the difference maker on whether a shop buys into this or stays out? Every, every retailer must register. And, and, and after registration, then they apply for an exemption. And uh, I was kind of surprised at, at, at the law figure on today's paper because I think uh, I, thought, I thought most retailers were, were actually registered. Now, in my own case, I don't have my machine yet. I, I personally geared up for it, but I haven't seen the machine yet or I haven't seen the ARS barcode yet. So you're prepared to make that investment and I was wondering if maybe that was the barrier for some smaller shops. How much does the machine cost? Well, in my case, the machine costs 14000 But you can see that, that when some people are kind of hesitant that to say, well, I invest uh, 14000 in a new machine and I may not get any income for that for maybe six or eight months. Will I be in business in six or eight mm. months? under the, uh, the present economic climate because we see so many closures in small businesses. I think it's fear. There's a risk in staying out too because this machine well, could drive footfall to competitors if you don't have one. Yeah, uh, if you don't have one, you must put up a sign saying where the nearest machine is. But uh, the, it's the sheer cost of the machine and I think... Uh, people need a little bit more confidence in the future. I don't think it's there at the moment. And maybe you can clarify a point. A few people have asked when you mentioned exemption. If a shop 
applies and secures the exemption, do they have to charge the extra 15 or 25 cents at point of sale? Oh, the charge will be on, on the point of sale for every product. They just won't get participating in the actual uh, refund of the vouchers. So if only a they third of shops are going to sign up, the risk is, of course, customers will be frustrated and they could direct their frustrations at policymakers. They could also direct their frustrations at shops who stay out. It normally is. That's that normally the case. The frustration is vented at the, at the counter. But uh, my feeling is I think there will be a rush to, to register. I think people will really concentrate their minds in the next few weeks. And whoever hasn't registered will, I'd say, register. But under law, you have to register and then apply for your exemption. I don't think that point is it's probably not being made clear enough that every retailer must, must register, regardless of your size. And then there'll be quite a lot of people uh, entitled to an exemption. Yeah, there may be a perception that it's an opt-in type of arrangement, whereas you have to register and then opt out to comply. Well, when, when in my own case, I have an investment of 14,000 sitting on the floor. Uh, there is uh, no sign of the, of the DRS barcodes coming on stream. Uh, we've reduced our stocks. Uh, a lot of our shelves are there awaiting this new DRS barcode, which hasn't arrived. And... Uh, until this barcode arrives, I can't generate any income from my machine. So, and that's and, and, and that's a kind of a, a put off. So, if we try to be constructive, then to give hmm. feedback to the Department of the Environment that's trying to promote this and obviously trying to do it for good reasons, what would sweeten the arrangement for retailers? I think uh, maybe our. Uh, some kind of a grant to put them in, a startup grant to get the, to, 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 to get people in. Yeah, once it was discerning, because yeah. I think if there was a grant for the large multiples that are making vast profits, um, that might be something taxpayers would object to. It's a different story if it's the village shop that's just treading water from year to year. Well, for, 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 for the last. 10, 15 years, I've been mean, trying to campaign for an ombudsperson for small independent businesses for up to maybe 20 employees and uh, that, that could engage with the small retailer because it's the small, uh, everything is geared towards the multiple. There's nothing, there's very little engagement except for ourselves with the small day-to-day retailer, particularly the rural retailer. Uh, 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 we, need, we need such a, such a person uh, to, to, to listen to our, our advice. No, nobody seems to listen. Martin, uh, we will check in with you uh, again once that scheme is up and running and let's showcase, I suppose, all of the smaller retailers who are prepared to make the investment despite perhaps it not being the best incentive and yeah. uh, to support them um, because the Tesco's and the Aldi's and the Lidl's and so on, they will they will be able to absorb this far easier. Thank you for taking our call. You're very welcome. Okay. Martin Mulligan runs Mulligan's Londis in Athlone. When you call 0818 is my number. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. Remarkably exciting story on the way 
in around 15 minutes of the young woman from County Leash and the young man from County Offaly. They emigrated to the United States and they wanted to build a better life for themselves and they happened to have a child. And he went on to be a very nasty individual, murdered his wife. He was arrested for that and then escaped. And he has been cited only glimpses of him over the years since. And even though he was wanted by the FBI since 1986, nobody has any idea where he went. Or at least if they do, they're not talking. It's time to look your best in suits, casual, formal and footwear for men and boys at Guy Clothing High Street Tullamore. The leading clothing destination for every man. Follow Guy Clothing Tullamore on social media. To your comments, well, good morning. In relation to the recycling levy, I have a recycling bin. I don't see the reason I should have to pay again. I agree with recycling. I disagree with paying twice. Hmm. That is the problem, that you have to bring all of these bottles and cans to another location other than your home to get your money back. And it also kind of defeats the whole purpose of reducing your carbon footprint if you're perhaps making an unnecessary journey in doing so. At the very least, it's going to be a bit of a faff carrying in potentially bags and bags to your shopping and then you bring all your regular shopping back. Maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe we'll just get in the habit and it'll be like second nature after a while. Well, did you really go late to the news because you were afraid of damaging your nether regions on a bike? Hang on, hang on, hang on. We were talking about a health study and it was a legitimate concern, I think, of many gentlemen who are in middle age up on the saddle and there's pressure where maybe pressure isn't a good thing. Had to hear the lady out. Well, cycling seems to turn many riders into full-blown bollocks. Yes, if that perhaps explains the damage to the gentleman's sausage, says a text. Regarding Maeve, the poor doggy who was found after being hit with an axe on the head. Well, I am absolutely gutted, says a caller, when you consider the love and the fun a dog gives back when it is loved. That's from Mar. Well, I am sickened by what I have heard. What has become of society today, the inhumane behaviour of people towards animals, and I'm really upset I cannot get that image out of my head, and the heartless human being who did this needs to be jailed. Yes, unfortunately, there are people who are wired differently, I think, to everybody else and just do not have empathy. And if they will do that to an animal, I'm sure they wouldn't think twice about doing it to a person as well. Friday morning on Midlands 103 and a criminal investigation has been launched in Carlo into, wait for this now, how drugs vanished from a Gartha station. So... According to the journal.ie, cannabis worth €100,000 was seized in an operation only a few days ago. It was placed in a room in the Garda station and has now disappeared. How on earth did that happen and who's responsible? So, Gordy, are 
obviously investigating themselves in this respect. More on that, I've no doubt, in the days ahead. Now, next, here's an incredible story from, granted, several decades ago, but the person, in theory, might still be at large. They were once hunted by the FBI, and since 1986 have not been seen nor heard from. The name you trust with the news you need. Midlands Today. Midlands 103. Now, still on the agenda today, Friday panel takes you through all the news you may have missed over the last seven days. Plus, you meet the man who will work out how a 90-year-old has the aerobic capacity of a 30-year-old. Well, it's his grandfather that he's investigating. More on that a little bit later. Now, here is a story that we're only going to scratch the surface of today, but there is a full podcast on this if you're interested. And it's a series about Joe Maloney, who has roots through his parents in Counties Leash and in Counties Offaly. And since 1986, nobody has heard from this man, or at least if they have, they're not talking. But he is wanted by the FBI for murder. Let's find out more from Pavel Barter. Morning, Pavel. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Where does the story start? I suppose we should look at his parents, first of all. Sure. Well, so his parents emigrated from Ireland uh, at the start of the last century. His mother, Winifred Doyle, was from Leash. She was from Ballamore. Um, she grew up in the Raheine area and she left in the early part of the century, as did uh, his father, who were from Ross. Uh, his father was from Ross Gray. They married in Rochester in upstate New York in the early 1930s. So eventually, Joe Maloney is born, 1935. And what sort of a a life did he lead, do we know? He was a strange character. He um, was a little bit of a fantasist in his early years. He, um, He imagined himself being in the army and he wasn't actually in the army. And he drove to another in Rochester, a town in upstate New York for photographic industries like Xerox and so on. In 1962, he married a woman called June Fisk. They had two children. It wasn't a happy relationship. And she left him after five years, citing emotional and and physical uh, abuse. And it wasn't long after that when he held a birthday party for their five-year-old son, and she drank a cocktail at the birthday party that he had given her. She fell ill and died nine days later. So what did the subsequent investigation reveal? There was an autopsy. The autopsy ascertained a chemical compound in her system by the name of methyl alcohol. And it turned out when the investigators started looking into this that Joe Maloney had a friend who was a chemist and he had obtained a bottle of methyl alcohol from this chemist, unbeknownst to the chemist. And it was alleged that he had laced June's cocktail with some of this substance. A substance, by the way, which is used in embalming fluid. 
So he is subsequently brought to trial and convicted. Um, so how did he escape eventually um, having been arrested for murder? So what happened was he was actually, he was indicted on a charge of murder. And before it got to trial, he was, he, he managed to work his way into a psychiatric hospital for, for assessment and escaped, then went on the oh. run. Oh, excuse and me. So he, he actually never appeared um, before a jury to be tried. No. So he was indicted on a charge and... Before he got to trial, before the whole thing got to trial, he escaped. So at that point, the FBI, the federal and the state authorities started searching for him, but he was gone. Now, after that, what sort of pattern of breadcrumbs did he leave? Well, so the first... The first knowledge of his whereabouts after that occurred in 1973 when Gardy were called to investigate an incident at a home in South County, Dublin. One of the people in that house was a man called Michael O'Shea, who was a respected member of the local community, but the Gardy had been suspicious about his business activities for some time. So they took the prints of everyone in that house, including Michael O'Shea's, uh, the idea was to eliminate them from inquiries, but mm. they sent O'Shea's prints to Interpol, and Interpol came back with a match, and the match was Joseph Maloney, this man who had gone on the run on a charge of allegedly murdering his wife in 1967. So Joseph Maloney was now Michael O'Shea, and he was living in Ireland. So eventually, Michael O'Shea, Joseph Maloney, call him what you will, uh, he was arrested by the Gordy in cooperation with the FBI. But what happened then? Well, I guess it's important to mention that before that, there was nothing that they could do, you know, when they identified him in the mid-1970s because there was no extradition treaty. So they didn't inform Michael O'Shea that they were onto him, that they knew uh, where he was. And I suppose it's that part of the story where the Midlands comes into it because he purchased a house called Capard House in Leash, 125 acres, a stately home, which dates back to 1790 in Rosenalis. And he kind of lived like the Lord of the Manor there for some time. What people didn't know, and no one knew, you know, who were friends with him, knew that he was American, let alone knew his background because he had a story that he came from Kerry. Um, you know, so people we spoke to had no clue that this guy wasn't who he said he was. But what was really interesting about the fact that, he, you know, he bought this place in, in Leash Capard House was that it was just around the corner from where Winifred Doyle, his mother, grew up in Ballamore. So he almost gravitated back, you know, to the family area, the family host, uh, homestead. Ballamore is only so the Raheen you know, Ross Grey areas, it's only like 20 miles or so away from Capard House. It's very close. Yeah, but you, yeah, you just to just quite make... a, a tight triangle between where his father was raised, where his mother was raised, and then Capard, where he settled. And, and when you talk to people, was he at least trying to be a little under the radar? 
or was he very openly living his life as Michael O'Shea? No, he was very openly living his life as Michael O'Shea. But, you know, we have to remember that Michael O'Shea didn't exist. You know, he was a fabrication. He was a character created by Joe Maloney. But he was an incredibly convincing character, very charismatic character by all accounts. So people had no clue. When he was arrested eventually in the mid-1980s, People were absolutely stunned and shocked in the local area in, in Leash. I mean, they couldn't believe it because this guy was everything that he said. He was nothing that he said he was, and he was something else entirely. And he was arrested in early 1985 when an extradition treaty was finally put together. So he spends how long in Mountjoy? So he was in the Joy for about a year and a half. He was in the Joy for a bit, and then he was in Port Leash as well. And then what happened, another twist in this story, and you know, it's one of the saddest twists of all, really, because his extradition had been passed. They were just waiting for him to get a couple of hearings out of the way or appeals out of the way, and then he was going to be deported back to the US. But at that point, it turned out that part of the extradition treaty hadn't been properly ratified by the Dole. And at that point, the treaty collapsed. It was basically upon appeal from someone else who was going to be extradited. And at that point, Joseph Maloney, Michael O'Shea, as he was known in Leash, was released and he disappeared. So they had to release him, presumably once the treaty was amended and, and rectified, they would have intended to arrest him again. He would have known that and so got out of Dodge. 1986 was the year. So here we are. 38 years after he was released. You've got to remember, this is 57 years later after the the alleged crime, after the um, alleged homicide of his wife. And no, there hasn't been anything since. He was married to a woman called Sheila Chandler in 1974 in Dundalk. You know, she, sorry, uh, in uh, Dalkey. And she um, she went on the run with him as well. She, from what we can ascertain, left with him. But there has been no sign whatsoever. She died in, in 2010, according to her death certificate. But there has been no sign of him at all. So this is... And he so would run, be run, run, 89 this year. So conceivably yeah. could still be alive. He's still, yeah, conceivably he could still still be alive. And the uh, the district attorney's office in Rochester, the case is still open. Um, from what we can tell, and we do have FBI agents who work the case, as well as the DA's office, are in Runaway Joe, the RT documentary and one uh, podcast, which we've been creating. So, you know, it's still an open case. And what's interesting about it is it's probably, you know, one of the oldest unsolved cases in the FBI's books. This guy escaped justice across America and Ireland across six decades. And he remains wanted on a charge of killing his wife and he was never held accountable. His second wife, Sheila, you mentioned her death certificate. And while we don't know if they remained together, where did she pass away? So she passed away in Dublin, in Dorky. And we would, we would encourage anyone who 
who knew Michael, who knew uh, knew Joe, um, who knew Sheila, who, who you know, who might have any information at all to to reach out to documentaries at rte.ie. Because this is a this is a live investigation, so we're hoping as the series progresses, we'll you know start finding some answers, I guess, about where where Michael went. We've only scratched the surface of the story, so anybody wishing to get into the detail of it, how do you find the podcast? So the podcast is available now. The first two episodes on all pod podcast platforms, whatever, wherever you get your podcasts, and yeah, you can you can listen to. Uh, the beginning of this investigation, and then we're going to have episodes which are dropping weekly after that up until uh, the end of February, at least. Pavel, fascinating it's story. Probably, um, thanks. It's probably just important to mention as well that although this is an, an unusual story, the behavioral traits that we see here, and we've spoken to experts in coercive control and domestic violence, they were textbook. And although this case was from a long time ago, almost 60 years, some of the traits of the case and some of the things that happened, we have to remember that June, his wife, is at the heart of this story, um, could be from last year. It could be from 2023. So this is why you know, we think that Michael O'Shea, Joseph Maloney, should be held accountable for his actions. Pavel, grateful for your time. Thank you for taking the call. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, still on the agenda today, the Friday panel takes you through all you may have missed over the last week. We also hear the secret to having the uh, metabolic engine of a 30-year-old when you are in your 90s. And next, thankfully, the Arctic air blast is going to leave us. But what's coming in its wake? Midlands Today, with the stories beyond the headlines. Midlands 103. Mm, Dolores always is sceptical when she hears about the FBI. Just listen to the story of Molly Martins and her father and what happened to Jason Corbett. Law enforcement in the States is a very, very different beast to hear, she says. And should we send Irish citizens back to the States to be tried for murder. No, I don't think so, she says. Another caller is reminded of the Norman Bates story in listening to Runaway Joe. And one final text regarding the poor innocent dog attacked with an axe near Tullamore. Will, jail is not fit for a person who would do that. I don't want my taxpayers' money used to feed that sort of person in prison. Just imagine doing that to an innocent pup. That's from Maria in Portlaoise. Well, look, we highlighted it because, unfortunately, stories like that happen and there are great organisations, voluntary organisations, that come to the rescue. In that case, it was My Lovely Horse Rescue and they always need support and they always need money. Dirty word, I know, but that's how they keep the lights on and keep the medicines in and keep those animals warm after such cruelty. And in this case, at least, there was a happy ending. Now, the first Arctic air blast of the year is about to end. Temperatures will be going up from later today. But what comes after the blisteringly cold conditions? Cahill Nolan runs Ireland's Weather Channel. He's a meteorologist from Road in County Offaly. Good morning, Cahill. A very good morning, Will. 
And it is nice, pleasant, looking outside. Sky is clear. Uh, sun is shining. Still on the cold side. Typically wintry morning. It's going to be very different in 24 hours. Well, it certainly is. I suppose conditions this morning, glory across the Midlands this morning. So bit It was the lowest temperature we saw recorded at a weather station in Thomastown in Kilkenny. But I suppose, as you said, 24 hours time, it's a completely different picture. We see the southwesterly winds start to pick up through the course of today. We'll see cloud building later on this evening tonight. And then we see the first rain pushing across the country tomorrow, accompanied by gusty winds, it must be said. And thereafter, we have the potential for some rather stormy conditions in the Midlands as we go through Sunday. And indeed, Storm Isha, just inside the last hour, has been officially named by the Met Office. So... I assume the warmer air mass is contributing to some of that volatility. Sunday, for instance, afternoon temperatures up to 12, maybe 13 degrees. Uh, so how much, um, how intense will Storm Isa be based on the models you're seeing at the moment? Well, based on the models that we're seeing at the moment, conditions right across the country, we could expect to see gusts between about 90 to 110 kilometres per hour in some parts of the country more exposed Atlantic coastal areas and even potentially across parts of the north, we could see winds here gusting above 120 kilometres per hour for a time. So the status amber weather warning Mm. at the moment in place has been issued by the Met Office, status yellow for Ireland, but I expect that certainly will be updated in due course. Certainly status orange warnings now look likely across probably many parts of the country. Yes, I recall Storm Debbie back in November, 120 kilometre gusts were forecast and that eventually was upgraded to red so the storm will pass and looking beyond that is there at least more stable weather more normal weather in its wake (laughs) on the horizon line certainly so so for the early part of next week it remains unsettled we see the atlantic firmly in control there's a pretty strong jet stream and that's pushing in a couple of low pressure systems some of which could again bring gale force winds at times, specifically maybe through Tuesday and into Wednesday. Thereafter, we start to see high pressure build to the east and southeast of the country. Now, initially, that will feed in, I suppose, more southerly winds across the country. So it'll become drier, but it'll also be quite mild as well. So for the past week, temperatures have been five degrees below average. As we get through the middle and the second half of next week, temperatures could be five degrees above average. So a complete flip in our weather. (laughs) But I suppose the long term, it really depends upon the location of that high pressure if it goes rather to the north or to the northwest, we could see a return to dry, cold conditions. If it stays up a bit further to the east, I suppose a little bit more overcast, but certainly plenty of mild and dry weather. Well, we'll keep an eye on Ireland's Weather Channel on Facebook for more details. But Sunday, anyway, the day of the storm, be prepared in advance. Cahill Nolan, as ever, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Will. Love the Midlands. We were talking earlier about the website iHealthFacts.ie, which investigates and checks different pieces of research to determine what is fact and what is fiction. And you can ask questions about anything such as does magnesium help you sleep or does rosemary help if your hair is thinning? But a caller points out if it is funded by the HSE, which it is, is it ever entirely objective? And I suppose the only way to determine that is to watch over time the conclusions they come to. 
And then, if you see a pattern, if you see a bias, you'll know. Anyway, still on the agenda today, the Friday panel takes us through everything that has happened over the last seven days. The good, the bad, the funny, the serious, the not so serious. But first, a story that I think proves it's never too late to start when it comes to your health. Because this is a man who is in his 90s, who has the aerobic engine of a 30 or 40 year old, and whom you're probably thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're thinking, oh, well, he was always fit. He was always active. He only started to train when he was in his 70s and he fell in love with the rowing machine. And actually, it was quite by accident. And now his case is going to be studied, funnily enough, by his grandson, who is Lorcan Daly, an assistant lecturer at the Technological University of the Shannon. Good morning, Lorcan. Thank you for taking our call. Hi there. Thanks a million for having me. Tell us a little bit about Richard and his background. Yeah, so he's he's quite unique. Um, obviously, he's a brilliant grandfather to me, uh, very active and everything like that. But he's, he's unique, as you mentioned there, in that he started his sporting career at 73. So prior to that, he never really did any structured exercise. Um, my first cousin, his other grandson, used to compete with Rowan and he used to actually drive him to training. And how he got started, he used to watch him while he was training and he just hopped on one of the machines and one of the coaches was walking by and said, you know, you have a very good technique. Would you ever consider to keep doing it? And then he got very interested in it, kept doing it, competed nationally and then uh, went to a number a number of world championships internationally. So I, I was in America with him twice in, in Washington and Boston at these competitions uh, which was a brilliant experience to see them all competing against each other. So they had a great camaraderie. They'd all know each mm. other. They'd all chat within the dressing rooms after. And, you know, but they'd also be competitive as well with each other, trying to beat each other. So it's a pretty cool environment and definitely gave him a great lease of life, gave him great focus and purpose. And he really enjoyed it, kept him very well. And how quickly did he go from that first accidental session on the rowing machine to competing in some of these very high-level events? I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. He definitely started training slowly enough and then they got, he actually got a, um, a rowing machine for my first cousin there, had that in the in the shed near the house and then just started using that, started training. I'm not sure the exact timeline or the details, but really took to it and then thought to compete then um, and then went to Limerick, I'd imagine, at some stage, whenever, whatever year that was, and then just you know, really took off with it then, I suppose. I suppose it can be reinforcing as well. Anybody who's trained, who sees progress, it incentivizes you to do more, to be consistent. And I was reading in the article in the Irish Independent, that's one of his secrets is consistency. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I suppose when you're retired, it's it's a perfect opportunity to do something like this. He used to train even twice a day, many days, long training sessions. He could be doing some serious mileage on the machine. Um, and that was probably his main focus in some ways, kept him very active and, and kept him kept him going. So he could put a lot of consistency behind it. His diet was very consistent. 
what we noted on that was that he had a higher protein intake, which you typically mightn't see in in people of advanced age like that. They tend to have lower protein and obviously not very active. So that's probably a recipe for losing muscle mass, losing fitness. Mm. But he was quite the opposite. So he had the high protein there. Um, and was and then in line this with his, in the form of supplements and whey protein powders or was it all dietary protein like chicken and eggs and such things? Yeah, so definitely there's, there's a lot of talk about that. So I would probably like to stress that, you know, your regular food is perfect with the protein. You definitely don't need shakes. He actually happened to use a shake just because my cousin had it, had it there and, and he, he just, you know, wanted to have him read up about it. But by all means, any source is perfect. Um, but he did take uh, one scoop, we'll say, after training. But by all means, it could have been it could have been fine or even better through the normal dietary uh, intake, I'd say. So your background then, you are an assistant lecturer in exercise science, funnily enough. So you look at your grandfather and you think, hmm, this is worth studying. So what sort of questions would have framed your study? So definitely, it had always been at the back of my mind um, to do something with him or even just do testing. Um, but I had, I had, I always had thought of it, but never actually went and did it. Um, so I had worked on another study with another researcher from the Netherlands, Bas van Horen is his name, and he had done some studies in uh, master athletes, so uh, world record marathon holder, I think who was 70 years of age. So when I saw he had published that, I thought, well, look, my own granddad is 23 years older than that. Um, so that's surely going to be very interesting. So our research questions, we wanted to basically look at what is his habitual training, what is his physical status, his cardiopulmonary uh, capacity, all these kind of things, his muscle mass. And basically, uh, just to infer, we hadn't obviously been measuring his, his whole life where he mm. was, but we wanted to estimate, you know, if you can start exercise at, you know, in your 70s, can you develop these things? And by all means, it seems like you can. And there's many other research to show that you can gain strength, power, aerobic fitness significantly. Even now, in advanced ages, as 85 years old plus, you can certainly improve. So the body is plastic to demands you'll put it under. Um, so definitely we need to keep that in mind as, as you're getting older. While you might not have tracked his progress over time, you would have access to averages for the general population, various metrics that indicate health. Yes. So how did your granddad compare, say, aerobically to somebody of a younger age? Well, some of the measures we looked at, we basically got him to do a time trial and measured his his cardiopulmonary function, his heart rate, his oxygen intake. Um, so one of the things that stood out, basically, when you start exercise, your demand for ex- oxygen increases as you start running or cycling or rowing or whatever, and the speed that that increases and meets its demand, how quick that occurs is a good indicator of how fit you are. So his transition there was very quick and it'll be similar to a value for someone who is healthy at the ages of even around 30 years of age. So that was quite phenomenal to see that. He had a similar level to a normal person for that test at 30 years of age. Everything else and compared just to a normal... Mind, for anybody just joining us, we're talking about a 93-year-old man having the yes. aerobic yeah. attributes of somebody 60 years their junior. 
Definitely. So compared to normative values for you know people of a similar age, many of the normative values only go up to maybe 70 or 80 that we can find many of these. So for compared against a normal person, 70 to 80 year old, he's in the 95th, 99th percentile for everything we looked at. So very high muscle mass, very lean, um, very high fitness levels, strength, or all, all these kind of things. He, he was very, very high, obviously compared to a normal person. Um, but we also, we do indeed have some of his performance measures. So looking at him since he was started at 73, he does a course decline. So probably the, the big message is, of course, aging, there will be declines. But by all means, it doesn't have to be as steep a, a decline as, as we would see if you're not doing any activity um, at an older age. Does he have any vices? Does he have a sweet tooth, for instance? Um, I, I think, you know, I was just chatting with my aunt about this. He does, he liked the training because he could eat a lot more, obviously. So he liked to do the many hours of training. Uh, he enjoyed then to be able to eat more. He doesn't, he doesn't eat a, a huge amount of any of that sort of stuff. He, he would have a dessert occasionally. Um, we were kind of laughing the other time what he does when he had some periods where he'd be doing serious volumes. He might be, you know, a few hours. Then he would eat more, uh, uh, all bran or wheat scones. So that was this kind of thing. If he, he did a lot of training, he'd have more of those. If he wasn't doing so much, he might have a bit less of those. But everything else stayed very similar. But no no real vices. He, to be honest, he used to smoke many years ago and, and not do any activity. So it's definitely a big change from when he was younger. And I'm mindful not everybody would be able to do this. In fact, it could be even be dangerous for somebody, uh, depending on any underlying health conditions, to jump in too much too quickly. So yeah. what's the, I suppose, the moral of the story that somebody else in their 70s, as your granddad was when he started, how would they apply the learnings from your study? Definitely so. If there's any sort of underlying condition, certainly get clearance from a doctor or, or medical staff, whoever, that you can actually, you know, perform exercise well. Um, but of course, a big spike is a bad idea. You know, gently start it, see how you go, um, but try and work up a bit. So what we'd like people to be doing is some kind of aerobic activity. So be that walking, even jogging, cycling, rowing, of course some kind of aerobic thing like that, but also some resistance exercise to keep you strong. So that can even be just, you know, getting up out of a seat over and over again, just so some kind of squatting exercise, even pushing up against the table there or, or a wall just to start, just to get some stress on the muscles, some stress on the cardio, just to improve people's condition. Because what we see a lot of the problems with aging is people just do nothing for 30, 40 years and we see a progressive, progressive decline. And then eventually they're not even able to get out of a seat or they're out of breath mm -hmm. after going up a stairs. So by all means, you, you want to have a exercise stimulus there. But of course, you know, not too much too soon and make sure you're cleared to do so with a, a medical staff. But does Richard's example make a particular case for rowing, given that it is nearly an all over body exercise? Yes, I, in my mind, I would say it's it's nearly the perfect routine he was doing because he's doing the 
obviously the rowing, its whole body, it's challenging the arms, the legs, the back, everything. So that's, there's a big demand for oxygen and blood flow all around the body. Okay. So the heart has to work very hard with that. So that's perfect. That's what you want. Um, also, he's supplemented that with some resistance exercises. So he had dumbbells there. So that's getting his strength and power up as well. So really, it's it's a perfect routine for health and performance that he was doing, whether it was by accident or design, but it's worked out very well for him. And I think orders for rowing machines will be spiking after this. It's a fascinating example and uh, best wishes to him and to you. Thank you very much for taking our call, Dorkin. Thanks a million. I'm delighted to be on. Thanks very much. Lorcan Daly from the Technological University of the Shannon. He is the grandson of Richard, 93 years of age, only started exercising, um, well, consistently at least, in his 70s, and now has the aerobic engine of a healthy 30 or 40-year-old. Well done, sir. Midlands Today's Friday panel. Thanks to Comfort Keepers Home Care. A caring voice and a daily dose of joy. Comfortkeepers.ie Let's meet our Friday panel. And first of all, we have Deirdre Fox, who is the manager at the Offaly Volunteer Centre. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Did you have a nice Christmas, New Year? Are you busy I had for an January? Absolutely beautiful Christmas and New Year, and it's full speed ahead for the new year. What are the big projects uh, in the centre? Well, we have lots of opportunities um, listed with us at the moment. For example, the Irish Cancer Society are looking for voluntary drivers to bring people to appointments in Offaly. It's such a valuable way to give your time. You only have to give two hours a month to this opportunity. Family Carers Ireland are looking for people to manage their care line just to offer a listening ear and advice to information and give information to those who are caring for others. This is a virtual opportunity and can be done from home, the comfort of your own home. It's a once-off, awfully volunteering you're interested in. Look no further than our own Lucas in Offaly. They're having their annual Buttons and Bows fundraiser on Sunday, March the 3rd. They need volunteers for the day before and the day um, of the event just to help them set up and clear up. North Offaly, listeners, please, we have a huge need for voluntary drivers for Meals on Wheels. So, lots of ways people can help out. The reason we hear the most from volunteers is that they can give what they can back to their community. And what better way than to give your time? It's very rewarding. And you can find out more on our website or in our bio on our Instagram page. Would you like a job in sales? (laughs) No, thank you. Just follow Offaly Volunteer Centre. Jane Emery is here as well. And I'm looking at the branded top. From oh, Muddy Paws Canine Spa. <laughs> the last time yeah. actually, I admired it. That's yeah. the first time I've seen that. Yeah, normally I take the day off. I'm normally sneaky, but today I've sneaked, sneak, snuck out of work for a couple of hours to come over to do this to go back and finish off people's dogs. <laughs> yes, and, and just to clarify, it was the logo I was looking at because the logo happens to be positioned <laughs> in a very incriminating place. Okay. Shola. <laughs> and I notice we're back to blonde. Yeah, we are. We got bored of the colours, so we've gone to blonde for a while. Excellent. Excellent. Sean McKiernan is with us as well. It's our first time meeting you on the panel, Sean, and you're a political commentator and a mediator. And what else do you do? Um, chair interview panels and uh, coach people who are going for interviews and uh, do a bit of PR and communications work as well. And uh, I suppose hello to everyone in Westmeath and Leash and Offaly. It's my first time in Midlands uh, 103 and looking forward to it. Excellent. So let's launch into some of the stories from the week that was. And actually, a quick one for you, Sean. Let's put you to the test, your political (laughs) commentary. Donald Trump winning Iowa. 
in what is described in one headline as an overwhelming victory. The nuance, of course, is that there are three million Iowans. There were 110,000 <laughs> votes out of three million, and he got about half of those. So how emphatic is this win, really? Well, it's, it's, to do with the, it's to do with the structures within the Republican Party for picking their candidates. And I suppose each state has different rules in terms of how they go about doing that. And I and, and note, I mean, in a lot of states, they talk about primaries, but in, in Iowa's case, it's a caucus. So this is kind of the hard core of the Republican Party in that state, uh, gathering at small venues, um, community centres, church halls, uh, in some cases, private homes, and having that discussion amongst themselves about uh, who the candidate should be and representatives of each candidate giving their pitch. And in some cases, people move from one group to the other on foot of, of what they they hear. Um, so it's an internal party process and I suppose extremely internal in the case of Iowa. Um, in historic terms, it is a historic victory. I mean, I don't think there's been any candidate who had such a substantial margin since Bob Dole, and that would be back in 1996, mm. and he had a 13% margin. So it's it's the biggest margin for a, a non-incumbent president. Now, Trump is a former president, and that does give him some advantage, but for a non-incumbent president or non-incumbent candidate, uh, it, it's a huge win. Um, so all the attention then focuses to New Hampshire on Tuesday. Uh, different set of rules there. Uh, that's a primary um, competition and people who are not affiliated to the Republicans, people who might even be affiliated to the Democrats or people who describe themselves as independents can have their say there. And it says that does appear to give Nikki Haley a bit of an edge and um, give other candidates like Chris Christie an edge in polls. Now, he's pulled out. Um but I think realistically, in order to be a serious contender in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley needed to come second in, 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 in Iowa. Now, she had 19 percent and Ron DeSantis at 21 percent. And you might say there isn't much in it. Um, but I think she needed to come second and a strong second in order to build up momentum, in order to build up further endorsements from fellow politicians and most crucially in American politics to get money, to get in money. Um I think all the candidates between them spent something like 150 million on what is an internal party election in Iowa. That's about a thousand dollars per vote. Mm. Um, That's very scary, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that's I mean, how the American system works. Yes, I mean, it does it. I, I was on the Fine Gael National Executive for I, I can't remember now. I think it was something like twelve years, and I was vice chair for five. And I mean, the election budget was probably in the region. And this is something that's publicly available. It's not a secret. Uh, it's in various election returns. Uh, you know, the budget was probably around a million, and you know, um, and that was done again through a voluntary draw. Uh, most years but I mean so the scale of this but I mean they allow advertising you might like to hear this Will like they allow advertising on their radio they allow advertising on, on their television political attack ads were a big thing Yeah, the um, commercial side of me would like that the yeah. journalism side would not No and I think you, you're right You end up behoven to whoever is paying the bills Correct and I mean if you look at say congressmen in America I mean Senators have the advantage of being on a six-year election cycle, and that gives you time to bed in and do a bit of work and before you have to think about re-election. Their congressmen, and women indeed, I should say, are on a two-year election cycle. So, I mean, you're no more sooner in the job than you're out the campaigning again. again. You know, and I mean, that has a corrosive effect on, on politics, it has to be said. But if you look around the world, there are so many countries where it's been party A or party B. The UK, for instance, Jane... 
and it looks like we're switching back towards Labour at the next election if the opinion polls are in any way correct. So really, is there a lot of choice in democracies? Truthfully, I don't keep up with politics. I just find that as soon as they get in, they try their best and then end up just going back on everything they want to try and change and everything they want to try and do. And I just think it's just a big school playground. They all just seem to scrap with each other and it's the average person that's left trying to scrabble around to fend for themselves. Yeah, the argument is the permanent government is always there. The civil service, the directors general of the various departments and their higher-ups and politicians sometimes get a rude awakening. They come in with lots of ambitions and discover it's harder to effect change. Yeah, it's just, like I say, I just... All I know is as a small self-employed business, we get dumped on the most, regardless of what government's in power. We get very little help and very little in return. So from my point of view, I just don't bother with them. (laughs) Can you understand, Deirdre, the appeal of Mr Trump, given that you've had in the United States, much like here, cost of living crisis, um, immigration is a live issue there, has been for a long time, more so than here, and he speaks in a certain way that might appeal to people who feel otherwise disenfranchised? I suppose he forgets his old roots. That's what I would say to anybody that is conflicting about migration. Um, I, I, I'm terrified that Donald Trump is going to get in again. Um, I do. That's a strong word. Why terrified? Because I think that um, there was an awful lot of hatred incited in the United States, um, and it's it's starting again with with his with his campaign. You know, it's it's feeding into the hatred. Um, and I do feel that if, if the Americans looked at themselves no more than a lot of the Irish, we would see that um, we're all migrants of some sort. Um, I am concerned for Donald Trump. I am concerned for his policies. And I don't trust him. I actually just don't trust him. Um, and I just, just don't trust his capacity. Trust him to do what? In that his, his uh, supporters will argue when he was president... Putin didn't in dare invade Ukraine. Kim Jong-un of North Korea was brought to heel. They would point to some of these examples of how having a strong man in the White House can you actually be good. Prove, you can't actually prove that this wouldn't have happened if he had got in again. Sure, but I'm so, simply uh, representing uh, what his supporters yeah, will say. That's the, but they're always going to try and support him. They're his supporters. They're going to try and use political ways to try and prove that he was great. But you can't prove whether one way or another, if he'd got back in... It still could have happened. It, in fact, it could have actually most probably been worse because America might have gone in harder and stronger with more bombs, ammunition, everything like that. We don't know. You can't predict what would or wouldn't have happened if he had got back in the last term. And I wouldn't actually see that the, um, the current government are easy, the current no. US government are easy um, on any of the situations. But I do believe that there is certain... Um, Kudos for trying to negotiate peace as opposed to firing guns or fighting it with more guns. And but look at what they did along with the UK in Yemen last week. Yeah, what they did in Yemen was outrageous, actually, mm-hmm. to be fair. But also, I think that, look, we haven't come out in Ireland to oppose what is happening in, in uh, Palestine. And, you know, that that bothers me an awful lot as a, as a, as a state here. We have our own... We have our own laundry to, to wash and put out. Um, 
we're not strong enough. There were protests all over um, Dublin and there was quite a considerable amount of people turned up to Dublin last weekend and still we're sitting on the fence, you know, instead of denouncing what is happening in Palestine. So we can't look that far across the pond without looking into our own backyard. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Sean, but Mr. Biden is losing support in the opinion polls based on his position with Israel. Yeah, I suppose um, I do want to come back to something else there to said, if I may. Um, um, I don't know if you want me to do that now, but I mean, I, I suppose I don't think Israeli politicians would feel that the Irish government uh, is sitting on the fence. Uh, I, you know, I think they've been quoted as saying that Palestinians should either be nuked or sent to Ireland. So I think we... You know, in Israeli politics, we are very much seen on the Palestinian side, even though I think the government is trying yeah, to be... Yeah, and I remember the uh, foreign minister uh, took to exception to possible. a statement from Leo Varadkar, actually, Correct. a tweet. And, and, and Michal Martin was attacked uh, by numerous national and local politicians on one of his recent visits. And in fact, he was out there before the war started as well. So I, I think we are doing our best to promote um, um, peace and justice well, look, in the world as a country. Condemnation is um, a spectrum. So I suppose Deirdre's point is you would rather we were maybe a little bit further over. Yeah. Um, now, going back, what was the question you asked me? Sorry. Joe Biden, yeah. it appears, is losing support based on his international policy, in particular his relationship with Israel. Yeah, I mean... In order to win on the last occasion, Biden built a very broad coalition. Um, and it says he had an emphatic win in the popular vote, but the popular vote doesn't matter for the presidency. Um, he had an emphatic win in terms of the Electoral College, in terms of the number of votes in the Electoral College. But in fact, you know, a handful of states that delivered that majority in the Electoral College, the, the, the margin was actually very narrow. And I think we forget sometimes... Um, you know, you have to abide and respect the electoral systems that apply in, in other countries. We're a sovereign country and we fought very hard to be a sovereign country and we have to respect other sovereign countries and, and their electoral system as imperfect as it might be. So the Electoral College in America is not perfect. First past the post in Britain is not perfect, but it's the system that they want to have for themselves. Going back to the point, broad coalition formed by Biden had to get on board. If you throw your mind back to the 2020 Democratic primary, and indeed 2016 with Hillary uh, Clinton. Um, Clinton and uh, Biden faced very strong kind of insurgent challenge on their left wing from Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is an independent senator from Vermont, uh, but he caucuses, to use their term in America, with the Democrats in the Senate. Or to use Irish language, uh, he's in the parliamentary party. He takes the Democratic whip in the Senate, even though he's elected as an independent. That's to give him access to committees, etc. Um, and, and to give him speaking rights, etc. And he had a kind of, in a way, in a similar way to the way Trump kind of took over the Republican Party, and he did kind of take it over, um, Bernie Sanders kind of had an insurgent campaign on the left, which wasn't as successful, but it did shift the dial in terms of Biden's thinking. And this was a lot of younger, uh, more left wing, idealistic people who've backed Biden are upset by his stance on, on, on Israel. And so you can, you can begin to see the breakdown in that coalition. Mm. And the and person who seems to be there. targeting them isn't necessarily Donald Trump, but it's Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah, and I mean, Smaller party and independent candidates in America have never really had a realistic chance of winning. Now, probably the person who came closest was was Ross Perot. And again, he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't really there. Um, but, I mean, he did a lot of damage. And I suppose he did a lot of damage to George H.W. Uh, Bush. And that allowed Bill Clinton to get in. And I suppose that's a challenge for 
that's a challenge for Biden is Robert Kennedy being a Democrat. But he's also spouting a lot of stuff that, 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 that Trump, you know, himself and Trump actually agree on a lot of things yeah, too. He's quite anti-vaccine and so on. And I mean, the other, just to mention another name, Joe, uh, Joe Minchin, the senator uh, who is a Democrat, uh, but actually is a lot more Republican in, in a lot of his views. And so it shows parties change and, you know, the centre of gravity in, in, in politics and society can change. Um, over a generation or even over a decade. And um, I mean, he hasn't ruled out, he's monitoring the, the primaries and caucuses and he hasn't ruled out a potential third party candidacy as well. A long way to go. On our Friday panel, political commentator Sean McKiernan, Deirdre Fox from the Offaly Volunteer Centre and Jane, don't worry, no more politics, <laughs> Jane Emery of Muddy Paws K9 Spa in Athlone. Midlands Today's Friday panel with thanks to the caring hands of Comfort Keepers Home Care. Nurturing thoughts, caring moments. Comfortkeepers.ie If only you could have heard the reaction when I asked Deirdre Fox did she wish to discuss Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Suffice to say you're not watching. No, I'm not watching and I don't particularly care about the chemistry between Jennifer Samparelli and Dieran Gary. It's a bit of harmless owl crack. Well, that's fine. Let it be harmless owl crack. There's a lot lot more important items on our agenda today, I think. Well, one little bit of good news from the week. Borgosh Energy became the latest of the big energy companies to cut their electricity and gas prices by around 10% and... 600,000 customers will benefit from that. Electric Ireland were just before that. The expectation now is that maybe Energia will follow suit next. Jane, you run a small business, Muddy Paws Canine Spa. So you've heating and various appliances. Yeah, a lot of high-powered energy eating equipment, unfortunately, just because it has to be run by motors and stuff. So, I mean, like, at the worst point, my monthly bill was hitting €500 plus. Uh, for a small independent business, that is huge, huge money. When originally it was around about 180. Mm. Uh, Has it come back much? It's come back around about 100, 150 euro. Depends, but I mean, it's hard to tell fully because obviously, coming up to Christmas, busy period, electricity will go up because we've got intake mm. of extra dogs to try and get everyone happy and beautiful for Christmas. And then we have a couple of weeks in January where we're closed. So we're just starting back again. So you're back um, about 30% from the peak, yeah. but you're still up 50% from oh, where you were. Easily, easily, yeah. Easily, yeah. So, I mean, on average, I try and budget around about three to €500 Euro for my electricity just to have it in the account, make sure it's there. Um, but, yeah, it's... And then, obviously, I just make sure I send meter readings every month to make sure I'm not getting estimated bills that all of a sudden I don't get a billion for €800. Euro. <laughs> Um, so it's it's a balancing game at the moment still because you just don't know. I mean, households seem to be getting the better deal with that side of electricity with their money from the government and what have you, where, again, businesses are kind of forgotten about to a degree. Or if we do get anything offered, then we have to fill out these big applications and we have to answer about recycling, waste. We have to... It's so many loopholes to try and jump through to get stuff back for a small business. So I've just literally just been just taking it month by month and just well, unfortunately, fingers crossed it's coming back. Even this week, uh, two, possibly three businesses here in the Midlands have closed. Uh, there was a yeah. shop in Mullingar. Um, we had a Corner House in Athlone. Co- Corner House, that was last week. Yeah, Corner House, Cafe U and Clara. Yeah. 
uh, Soap Sisters, SNS Soap Sisters in there's, Port There's Lee. a lot of businesses in Athlone that are, are, are closing up. The High Street is getting... They revamped the High Street to bring more people to the High Street, but yet now the businesses can't stay afloat because of all the redoing of the High Street, shutting off roads, causing tailbacks, people not coming into Athlone because of the traffic and stuff. So it's all having a massive knock-on. And it, you can walk down Athlone Town Centre now and there are just shop after shop after shop for let, to, to for sale, everything. And it's just... I hear so many people saying they'd rather go elsewhere than come to Athlone now because really? of the traffic. Oh, I'm where I'm based in Sean Costello Street, down the very um, bottom near Rob's Ranch House and um, Elevate and what have you. There are times when the traffic is parked from Eddie Rockets down past my shop. They had one accident there day before last. It was on a flyover for the motorway. The whole town ended up gridlocked because there was traf- there was roadworks. And one another junction, there was then a small accident down at Gary Castle and it took people over an hour to get from one side of the town to the other. Cold comfort, but if you look around the Midlands and maybe it's because we're doing well economically, more people are driving, more people in work, more cars on the road, but Mullingar, the same complaint about traffic. Tullamore, same complaint about traffic. Portly, the list goes on. Can I I just even mention about the traffic because I'm born and reared in Tullamore in the middle of the town and they now have the uh, capacity to go around the town or to park in um, parking spots on the periphery of the town. People won't do it. No. People won't walk. It's two euros to park your car for the full day, three euros to park your car for the full day, either in Spallin's car park or the private one um, at the back of the town. People would prefer to drive down into the town and try and find a parking spot on the in O'Connor Square. They could be there for two or three hours or find a parking spot somewhere along the side of the street. So, you know, I uh, for me, Tullamore was quite busy over the Christmas period. My office is in the middle of the town and there's, there's fantastic parking mm. if people would just not think that they can come straight into town instead of taking a little bypass that'll bring them nearer to their destination. But no, there's that nosy little thing about wanting to come down the town. Yeah. And that, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, even for me getting into work now, I, I actually now start half an hour later in the day, purely for the fact that traffic trying to get into TUS is chaos. Monday to Thursday, I can be parked up, or coming in by Michael Moore's, and it can take me 30 to 40 minutes to but get But you don't Michael have Moore's. to come in by Michael Moore's. Well, I can go round onto the bypass yeah. into Clara, but then I've got the risk of the frost at the moment is going down country lanes. No, I'm, not, I'm talking about Athlone. Like, when you come into Athlone, you don't have to come in that way to Sean Costa Street. You have the capacity to take the bypass and come in at any of those sections along. I can't, because the bypass... I'd have to come in down by Michael Moore's, turn right for moat, get on at the moat, to get onto the motorway to then come back. Or I have to go get as far as um, Dune, turn off onto the real country roads that are not gritted, that are thick with ice, where you've got tractors, lorries, everything coming at you there because they're trying to avoid the traffic. And then that was going to add me on time as well. So actually coming from Banaher is very difficult because you are kind of caught in a lot of ways. You either have to go extremely miles mm-hmm. out of your way or sit in the traffic. And now they're building this massive new extension onto TUS. They still don't have accommodation in Athlone for students as it is, but yet there's going to be more courses, more students and more traffic. And they've done nothing about, 
you come in from well there is a big development I can't remember it's 200 odd apartments just for students yeah. being developed so sorry yeah. I, I'm challenging you because I was actually challenged by a man who lives yeah. down on Clontarf Road in Tullamore and he said to me when you're coming in from uh, Durrow where I live he said yeah. why do you come down Clontarf Road I said um um he said, why don't you come across onto the Clara Road, which is more accessible f- to your office? I said, OK. And he was right. Yeah. He was now, so right. I have tried several different routes. Yeah. And I do. And I do do collection and delivery. So most yeah, of the time I different. have to come in mm. yeah. a certain route because I've got to collect a dog on the way to yeah. or the way home. I've got to drop a dog off. So I have tried other routes. And it just either way you're kind of caught one way or another. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of motorists who know of sneaky shortcuts and they may share. Or then again, they may not because they want to keep them to themselves. If you're sitting in traffic, you can always listen to Midlands 103 and relax. Absolutely. I do anyway. Absolutely. Back back to business costs, though, because this was a really interesting uh, contribution to the Dole yesterday via Robert Troy, the Fianna Fáil TD in Longford, Westmeath. But he was Mm -hmm. given permission to reveal how one business in his constituency is trying to absorb a succession of cost increases. VAT rate increase, 82,500 per annum. Payroll due to minimum wage increase and work permit increases, 47,300 per annum. Sick pay benefits, 11,400. Auto pension enrolments, 12,800 per annum. An extra public holiday, 3,200 per annum. Food and packaging continues to increase and energy costs are still massively inflated. And the business he's referring to, Wholesome Kitchen in Mullingar. Sean, it's a decade since Enda Kenny said he wanted Ireland to be the best small country in the world in which to do business. Fine Gael has always branded itself, at least, as being the party of business. That doesn't sound like they're on the right track. Um a couple of things. Well, just I'm not on here to represent Fine Gael and I'm not an affiliated member of Fine Gael. I was very proud to be a Fine Gael public representative, but that's uh, 10 years ago now. Um, I says just when we talk about traffic and you quite rightly say, well, the traffic is a sign in many ways of economic success and, and of activity. I mean, I'm coming from outside the region, but I'm very familiar with the region. And I suppose I would consider Athlone and Tullamore and Mullingar and indeed Port Leash as well in your in your franchise area, as really significant, impressive county towns to visit, to drive through, etc. I know sometimes there's traffic and things like that, um, you know, and that can be frustrating, annoying, but I, I think they're fine towns and, 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 you know, I commend the business people mm. and the, the politicians who help make them that way. Classic political um, dodge. No, no, so but no, they are. No, I think we can sometimes, <laughs> well, we can sometimes be too question. negative. My question um, is... Just Going back to what, what we have here are a series, let's say, minimum wage increase, uh, the sick pay, measures like that, seen as policies of the left, perhaps? No, what? you're quite right. I mean, no, no, and we'll, we'll get into that part of it. And um, uh, we'll get into that part of it. I mean, I think the pandemic, if we go back to the pandemic and, you know, certain industries and we think particular, say, of food processing industries, had to keep going. Um, and the conditions there weren't very convivial to making sure the virus didn't spread. And a lot of people, particularly those who uh, don't have English and, and, and um, are from other countries, you know, weren't maybe fully aware of their rights, etc. And a big fuss was created about that, and rightly so, in the media. And it was that then led to comparisons with other European countries where we're well behind in terms of sick pay entitlement. And I suppose 
again, as you say, policies of the left that Fine Gael and government, and along with other allies now as well, co-opted. But the reality is, and I don't mind saying this, the reality is that they're claiming the credit for announcing these initiatives, but it is business people um, who are having to pay for them. Mm. Um, so they're getting, or they're trying to get all the good publicity. Now, you don't see much of a bump in the polls over it, uh, it has to be said. But it is, they're getting the good publicity by announcing it, but it's actually business people who are paying for it. Now, I think... And, and maybe it's the sequencing of it, because the minimum wage increase is 12%, the... Uh, sick pay increases as well as of 1st of January. Auto-enrollment pension is coming at us imminently and that'll be up to 5% of salary. Any one of which may be in isolation, a business might absorb, all coming together so quickly. That seems to be the bigger objection. I mean, I think it, 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 I think you're right. I mean, maybe the sequencing, there could have been better strategy around that. I gather, and if you followed the progression of the sick uh, leave legislation through the Dáil and, and Shannon a year or two ago, um, our now Taoiseach Leo Ragcart was the Minister for Business and particularly in the Shannad members because I just I happened to study the debate in the Shannad in particular why that's why it's fresh in my brain Senators of all parties highlighted the need for a rebate scheme or some sort of scheme and you know he and his officials indicated they were open to that but they needed to see it in operation for a couple of years before they got a sense of the, de- the demand for that and how they would go about implementing it so the other thing, I mean, I think employers have to be vigilant too. Um, you know, a good employer will have a staff handbook and will have policies in different areas of staff conduct. And I think they just need to be a little bit more vigorous in, in policing that. And I suppose Ireland is a small country. We like to be liked. Um, in a lot of cases, we'll know, we know the employees, not just as employees. We know them because we know the families and we know them from the locality mm-hmm. and we're not always keen to challenge bad practice if we see it. But I mean, even simple things like uh, this thing of people texting in the fact they're not going to come in, any good staff handbook or any good sick leave policy will say it has to be a phone call and there's a big difference between texting in your absence and actually having to phone a manager or phone a business mm-hmm. owner and, and lie to them on the phone. Um, they're very small things and I mean, they might make a big difference to people. I recall one company in America setting up a policy of duvet days twice a year because they reasoned people will phone in sick anyway, so you might as well call it a duvet day and turn a positive or a negative into a positive. But anyway, that's where we have to leave it. We didn't get to talk about the science of jealousy. And we didn't get to talk about the things pilots say to try and get you into bed. And we bed. also didn't talk about, and maybe we will get a chance to talk about, the, um, the referendum on the 8th of March. Um, which our colleagues and our members, um, Family Carers Ireland, are very keen um, to develop a campaign around yes, a yes vote, which is uh, looking at amending the constitution to include um, families in general as opposed to the mothers in the home, etc. Although I think there's still a lot of road to cover about the strength of the wording. Can I just say, I I, I sense political danger there for for the government. I mean, and I'm not not taking one side or another on the campaign, but I just think there's danger there uh, in that it's the first time in four years the people can express their democratic view, uh, apart from the voters of Dublin South East who had a by-election. Um, during the last four years. But I just think there's it's the first opportunity for people to express unhappiness. Referendums can be a very blunt instrument. We saw that with Brexit in the UK. We've seen that with previous European referenda in this country. 
and even despite our awful legacy on how we treated children in this country, the children's referendum over a decade ago was almost defeated. So I, I just I think there's danger here for the government. Mm. I'm glad Although to maybe hear. there's a view that it lets some of that frustration out before the local and Perhaps, European but elections. I'm glad to hear um, Deirdre make reference to civic society getting organised on this because that will be important. Yeah. There we must leave it. Jane Emery of Muddy Paws Canine Spa in Athlone, thank you. Thank you, thank you Will. And Deirdre, Thanks, uh, Deirdre Fox from the Tullamore, or Offaly, Offaly Volunteer Centre, based in Tullamore. That's right. And Sean McKiernan, political commentator, former Fine Gael politician, mediator, man of many hats. Thank you as thank well. Thank you. That's where we leave it today. Sinead Hubble was our producer. We'll do it all over again Monday morning from nine. Bye-bye. Midlands Today with Bus Erin. Use your TFI Young Adult or Student's Leap Card on board Bus Erin services as part of the Transport for Ireland network. Visit buserin.ie today.